joke? Do you think I'm a clown? Do you want to laugh at me? This is Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast. My podcast where I discuss writing, specifically Zev Good's writing today. I'm going to be making what I think will be a three-part series on All About the Benjamins by Zev Good. Before you listen to this series, I highly encourage you to go buy this book and read it. Why? Well, for one thing, there may be spoilers. Before I decided to record this, I asked Zev if he would mind me reading from it. Now, I assumed that he knew I might spoil some things about the book because I'm going to go as in-depth as I can with analysis and discussion of the book on my own. And as we all know, my sense of discussion and analysis often ends with me rambling. But that's what a podcast is, and if you don't like it, go listen to something else. But you should definitely buy this book. I'm not telling you that just so my friend can have some money. I am telling you this because... It's a damn good book, and I would not be spending my time on it if I didn't feel that way. I'll put it to you this way. I have a lot of buddies on Twitter who are writers, and Zev is the first gentleman who I'm going to review in depth from the writing community, if you want to call it that. But I cannot remember why. I bought this book in November. I have a part of my memory that is kind of wiped out. Although I do remember that Zev is the one who told me about Canva, which is what I used to design the cover of Demise of the Trinity, and redesigned all my other covers and so on. He's quite helpful and wise. And I've gotten to know him over the past few months, and he's one of my favorite people now. Um, I honestly consider him a friend, and I would do this even if I didn't consider him a friend, because the book is just that good. And the funny thing is is that I am rereading it now, and it's like I'm reading it for the first time. So, I have some things to talk about, per usual. And... If you don't know what the book is about, the front-center synopsis that I can give you is that it's about an older man who comes out to his family after his wife passes away, and it unravels from there, and it goes through the details of the family and their drama, but it's... A novel in the purest sense. It doesn't just tell a story. It tells multiple interweaving stories. It's an art that a lot of contemporary writers don't really have anymore. And a sense of how it's framed, it reminds me of a little bit of Percival Everett's Suitor. That book, as I've discussed before, sort of like two books meshed into one where you have flashbacks to the protagonist childhood intermingling with his present 
probably sound really fucking dumb right now. So I'm really weak today. Here's the thing. I started this diet again, a low carb diet, because my heart is telling me that I need to make a change. Blood pressure and anxiety is giving me a new perspective on not fucking dying. So I am going low carb and today I was good. I had my Atkins meal for breakfast, had a few pizza rolls for lunch. I know that doesn't sound healthy, but when you're doing low carb, it's not the worst in the world. But for dinner, my wife made pork chops, which is good, but she also made rice aroni, and I I made fried macaroni and cheese balls. And my stomach was bothering me. It's been bothering me since I ate those pizza rolls. And my stomach bothers me in general, but to help ease the pain, I, I ate a blizzard. It was a small blizzard, okay? And I haven't had anything to sweet all week. And I am living to regret it right now. Because now I sound like I have even less energy than I did before, if you can believe that. Because on Fridays, I'm fucking toasted, man. But I have spent so much time thinking about this book that I've had a dream about it. And Zev. I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone who is, how do I put this? heterosexual and there's no that's not necessarily a reason to label it all the time and then there's someone who's like no I'm not gay junior high was just one long gay accusation after another I think one person was gay I had a friend I will say his first name his name is Austin and he was bullied in elementary school and in junior high school because other guys thought he was gay. And he was my friend. I knew him since um, we went to daycare together. I never thought of him as being gay. Because he never told me he was gay until high school. Because I didn't think of him that way. I th- th- saw a person. I saw my friend. And it really didn't matter to me what sexuality he was. Austin and I went to Savannah on a class trip in the fifth grade, and we had to sleep in a king-size bed with this other guy. I won't say his name, but this other guy, being a typical fifth grader, wanted me to sleep between him and Austin because he thought Austin was gay, and he was afraid that Austin would try to have sex with him. We were in the fifth grade, so I don't think anyone was having sex on that trip, but you never know. It never really crossed my mind that Austin would want to have sex with either of us. Because even then I knew that if Austin were gay, he wouldn't necessarily want to have sex with every man he ever saw. And that was a commonly held perspective by kids in my school for a long time. Was that if you were gay, you were automatically attracted to every man. As if, if you were straight, you would be automatically attracted to every woman. It's closed-minded and stupid, and it's probably the result of not just 
dumb kids, but also their parents and growing up in the South and our often closed-minded perspective down here. But as time went on, Austin and I had another school trip that we went to. Uh, It was in North Georgia, and we all slept in a cabin, and I bunked with him. He and I were in a room alone together. Uh, At no point did I ever think, oh, Austin's going to put the moves on me, because I didn't really think of that. And I still didn't know he was gay because he wasn't out of the closet yet. Um, if he were out of the closet, I wouldn't have cared. He was my friend. He got on my nerves. We got on each other's nerves. But other than that, I didn't really think about it beyond that. So when he did come out, everyone acted like I was stupid to not see it before. Well, maybe I am, but honestly, didn't give a shit. I was happy that he came out. I was happy that he was finally aware of who he was and what he wanted to do but that makes it seem like being gay is a career choice but (laughs) it's nice to see people happy and be able to be themselves isn't it so you would think that being in the south and being in this really small town that that would have been the extent of my experience with homosexuality but my dad had a bunch of gay friends when I was young the only thing about that is that he didn't seem to realize that they were gay until later because according to my mom uh, he had at least six gay couples that were his friends six gay three gay couples I can't do math I'm sorry and she told me that, yeah, it was pretty obvious that they were gay. Again, I wouldn't know what that means. Uh, there are men who are very open about their sexuality, but there are two friends of my father's that stand out as not really being stereotypical in any way in terms of what being gay is. Um, their names were, God, one was Stanley, and he looked like the, the African-American guy from Ghostbusters. And then there was, it wasn't Jesse, was it? I was just thinking about his name last night. I'll call him Jesse for the sake of the, uh, the podcast. But Stanley and Jesse were a couple but they were two total opposites because Jesse was a long-haired redneck and kind of dorky, too. He had glasses. He was just a little bit on the pudgy side. Not fat, but, you know, just a, a little extra meat on his bones. <clears throat> and then Stanley was a tall black guy. And to be honest I think that Stanley was probably the first black guy that I knew I was really small I was like three four five probably knew them before then but my dad would take me over to their apartment and Jesse lived with his mother and maybe his grandmother too and I remember seeing a case of insure in her bedroom and saying oh I want some of that and she said oh no you don't want that but I spent a lot of time in that apartment, and when my dad was single, 
he left me there one time for Jesse to babysit me. And I remember Jesse taking me out to the playground and me playing and la-di-da. And later found out that he and Stanley were a couple. I thought they were just friends. And I really had no idea. And right now, I they still seem like they were just friends. Other than one fight I saw them get in that was kind of heated. But point being is that this is a book about accepting people as they are. And one of the, the ways that you accept people is looking beyond um, things like sexuality or skin color, but also accepting that about them. And, you know, it's odd because even when I was an adult and I was working at the hospital, I had two gentlemen in the kitchen who thought I might be gay. And to the point where they were talking behind my back wondering if I was gay. Because I was weird and different. I've always been weird and different. Of course, I was married at the time. And then my wife showed up while I was on my lunch break. And they were like, oh, I see. He's just a weird dude. It's odd that people look at you and they talk about homosexuality like it's a sickness or an infliction. It's stupid, really. But... What can you do about society other than try to change their minds through kindness and then now protest? So, after my dumb banter where I probably said a million dumb things and I'm going to have to edit once I'm done recording this, we have Zev Good. Zev Good was born and raised in the South. He currently lives with his husband in Atlanta, where is he at work on his next novel. Well, Zev is a bit more complicated than that simple little biography, but I'll let you get to know him. Well, Meet the Benjamins, all about the Benjamins, I'm reading the back, is, as I said, about a gentleman named Joel who is 58 and he comes out to his family after his wife Susan died a year prior and everyone in this book is Jewish so there's another thing another rarity in the south for me at least I was telling Zev last night when I was talking to him that in my town I've known two Jewish people one of them was a kid that I went to school with and then I think he moved away but there is this woman who worked at the elementary school for years and years, although she wasn't a teacher. And she was older, and she's still alive, but she was such a rarity in my small little town that my local newspaper did an article on her and had her picture in the paper and everything about her beliefs and practices. And she looks a bit like a Jewish pirate. Anyway, enough of my anti-sentimentism. Cinnamon. Anti-cinnamon. I'm going to start with the opening chapter, and we're going to get into it, okay? 
The first time Joel Benjamin had sex with a man, he expected it to leave a permanent mark. Something he could point to years later, like a scar or a tattoo, and recount how he'd gotten it and who'd given it to him. Right off the bat. You know what the book is going to be all about. So, if you have a problem with homosexuality, you're probably going to put this book down as soon as you pick it up because it it really takes no prisoners in terms of sexuality, really. Although, later on, there's a subplot about Joel's grandson, Ethan, and him ha- trying to have sex for the first time with a girl. But otherwise, Joel is... I like him, but at the same time, there are things about him that I don't like. But the the opening of the book is his first real encounter with a man. And he's, I want to say 25, takes place in 1985. But um, it's the second sentence that says that it's he was 25 years old and it happened in the fall of 1985. So I get a gold star today. But... He meets another man, his name's Dwight, in a bar, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and for some reason, Dwight picks up on a vibe from Joel, and they go to a gay bar. It's almost like a test, yeah? And there's this whole thing later on in the book where uh, Joel's son, Adam, it's not Adam, it's his friend Kent mentions gaydar. (laughs) you know that thing that they make fun of in the office yeah well apparently that's something that people actually consider my gaydar is broken because I didn't know that my friend was gay and I knew him for years that probably says more about me than it does my friend of course but yeah So there's this awkward interaction with him and this other guy and Joel has to kind of lean into this situation because he wants to be with Dwight, but he's married and he's on a trip for a convention. And there's the whole aspect of being unfaithful to his wife, even though he's not straight and then he's never been with a man before. And then this is just a casual hookup. Also something new for Joel, supposedly. So, gosh, that's a lot to unpack. And it's just the opening chapter. And later on in the book, it talks about how Joel ends up having affairs with other men, uh, other professors, because he's a college professor, running around on his wife and kind of feeling guilty about it. But at the same time, it seems like he does it. That's the sure sign of a good character, though. He's complicated. And one of the things that I have to give Zev credit for is that none of his characters are one note. They're all complex and well thought out. So... 
he told me that one of his readers complained that there wasn't enough graphic sexuality in this book and that's not the kind of book it is it talks a little bit about what leads up to the sex and then what happens after the sex but not the actual sex itself for the most part in fact I don't know what these gentlemen did in bed but that's what your imagination is for maybe they just pulled out their stuffed ponies and rubbed them together but the morning after, then Dwight kissed him again. Joel stroked the golden hair that covered Dwight's chest, and somehow he got through it unarmed. Afterward, Dwight asked him again, Are you okay? Yes, Joel said, and wondered if he would be okay later. Like, would he regret it, and would that pang of conscience expose him? Joel is having an inner battle with him, himself for decades. And for him to have to come out to his children later on, it's not like it just happens in the second chapter. What's interesting is that when I, I was rereading this and thinking back to when I first read it, I remember him coming out earlier in the book. It's like I was reading a different book. Now... 34 years later, Joel was ready to come out of the closet. He just wasn't sure how to get it, go about it. There were days where he was convinced of his purpose, and he stood in front of the bathroom mirror and rehearsed the words he wanted to say and how he wanted to say them. The next day, that certainty would vanish, and he would be in emotional agony. It always looked so easy in movies and on TV, or in the tabloids when actors and singers came out. For years they were straight, they married, and they divorced. And then one day, they were coming out and people talked only of their courage, their strength. He couldn't understand why he was having such difficulty with it. He was 58 years old. He wasn't getting any younger and it was time. So on one of those days where he was sure of himself, he called his daughter. So... Amy and Adam. Amy is Joel's daughter. Adam is his son. And spoiler alert, Adam is gay. But Amy is straight. She's recently divorced. Coincidentally, her divorce occurs a year before the events in the book, much like Joel's wife dies a year before the book ends. Well, a year before he, the book begins. So, there's some parallel there, of course, but Adam is a bit of a mess. And it even talks about how Adam is the kind of guy to quit a job without notice, and then somehow, after a while of not having a job, he gets another job. And it's like a never-ending cycle with him. So, he's also the voice of reason for Amy in a lot of instances, especially with her son, Ethan. But when it comes to Adam and his father, there's a clash there that I'll talk about later. Before I delve further into reading and discussing, a lot of what Jill feels 
is pretty universal to us all. And it helps you relate to what he's going through, even if you're not gay and you've never had to go through it. And that's a testament to how good Zev is at this. There were times when I had to stop and compose myself. And honestly, I talked about this in my episode of Post Office where I got verklempt talking about the scene where Bukowski is going to the hospital to see his old girlfriend. And I've had to wipe a few tears away because of this book. And that's not common. I can't think of another time other than that Bukowski book where a book has really gotten me that way. So that's a, another sure tale sign of Zev doing something right. Well, Joel is depressed. He's got a lot of anxiety about his situation, and he's dealing with the mourning of his wife. And there's a complicated love there, because while he wasn't romantically attracted to his wife, he did produce two children with her. So without being too gross, yeah, he had to have sex with her a few times to, for that to happen. But later on, it talks about how they both got through their marriage a little bit. But I'll save that for that scene. Joel is relatable, even with all of his flaws. So, I thought I would have something more profound to say. Alas, I do not. The next scene is with Amy and Joel speaking, and you have your first real conversation in the book. And... One of the things that one of our fellow writers in the write, the Twitter writing community commended Zev on was his ability to write dialogue. Zev spends a lot of time thinking about how he wants characters to write to the point where he will speak as those characters to himself. It's not entirely unlike my process of getting into a character's perspective through kind of a method actor's process, but... The opening dialogue here is not particularly fascinating. It's just small talk. Dad, hi, is something wrong? Since the death of his wife six months ago, Amy made a habit of asking him this any time he called. Joel laughed and gave her the same reply he always gave. Nothing's wrong, honey. I can call you when nothing's wrong, can I? Joel says that a few times. He says, I can call you when nothing's wrong, can I? He also laughs a lot. It's a self-defense mechanism. It's a self-defense mechanism for me. I laugh all the time. Well, yeah, of course. Are you busy? I can call back later. No, Amy said, though Joel heard activity on her end and knew she was at work. She was a hairdresser, or she always reminded him that that was an old-fashioned term and conjured images of beehives and bubble flips. And Amy insisted that he understand she was a 
stylist. I'll make it quick then, Joel said. I want you and Ethan to come over for dinner on Friday. I'm calling your brother, too. Yeah, I have to admit, if my dad called me and said that he wanted me and my half-sister to come see him, uh, it would put me on edge, mostly because I don't have a relationship with my half-sister. Uh, I'd refer to myself as an only child because we're, we're not really siblings. But Amy and Adam have a closer bond, and for him to call them together means something more significant because guess what? Over the past year, he probably hasn't gotten together with both of them at the same time. And there's a chance that even when their mother, Susan, was alive, he didn't have them over all too often together either. Everything's fine, Joel said. Really, I swear. It's just dinner. Only it wasn't. And he felt the whole thing derailing already. Anxiety. Anxiety. And Adam's coming, she asked. Yes, I'm calling him as soon as I hang up with you. More silence from Amy. And you're sure everything is fine. She did not sound convinced. And she had every right to be doubtful. He and Susan had called them together almost four years ago to announce her cancer diagnosis and prognosis, and Joe was kicking himself for not having practiced his phone call better. Honey, it's just dinner, he said again. It's just dinner. You and me and Ethan and Adam, just the four of us, and we'll talk. About what? Just nothing. Everything. Anything. Now, of course, eventually, they get together. But one of the things that Zev does so well is build your anticipation. And once you think you're close to that finish line and he's going to deliver, he pulls back a little bit. You fucking tease, Zev. You fucking tease. Another thing that this phone conversation between Joel and Amy and then him and Adam bring about is the camaraderie between Amy and Adam. See, Adam and Amy are sort of worried about their father all the time. And they come together and it's like they're trying to plot for him or take care of their child. In a sense, it's like the daughter from Slaughterhouse-Five. But their conversation happens after Adam texts her, Call me. Then I left you a voice message. Then I think Dad has cancer or something. Then call me. Fuck. Adam is a little uh, dramatic. So... Opening line of their conversation. What the fuck, Amy? He barked. Damn, Adam, I was with a client. It was a triple process. Whatever. And Dad is not dying. Adam rolled his eyes and he lit the cigarette. Are you smoking again? Amy asked. How'd you know? He asked. I heard the lighter. Not that, he said and waved a dismissive hand. Yeah, I'm smoking again. So what? How do you know Dad's not dying? She sighed. Because he didn't sound like he was dying. 
that want to laugh from Adam. What's so funny? What does cancer sound like, Amy? Oh, for shit's sake, Adam, I've got to go. I've got another client waiting. Just, It's been a while since Mom died, and Dad's getting older, and he's probably feeling lonely, so he's inviting us all over for Shabbat dinner. That's all. He's not dying, Adam grunted. There's a lot of grunting that goes on in this book. And I thought you said the Chantix was working. But I started having nightmares where everything was nuclear war and I'd wake up freaked out. So I'd smoke, he exhaled. I'll quit again, I'm sure. This makes my fifth time quitting so far. I'm getting good at it. An interesting thing to know about Adam and his behavior is that it's somewhat reflective of his mother, Susan's, behavior. And of course... There's the comparison between Adam and Ethan, Amy's son, and Ethan is more important later on in the book, but Ethan supposedly looks a hell of a lot like Adam to the point where Joel and Amy and Adam all compare Adam and Ethan's baby photos and they look like the same child. And Ethan's behavior is not unlike Adam's ear. Uh, he finally pops later on. But Adam is composed in ways that Amy is not, and then vice versa. The dialogue between them there, it seemed like I was reading from an actual conversation between a brother and a sister. And they're both deciding what the hell's going on with their dad and what to do about it. And really, Joel is 58. He's not an old invalid man. So it's not like he needs their help. And then later on, Joel is sort of a voice of, of reason with Ethan. So it's interesting how the, the roles swap throughout this book. And how, as characters evolve, people kind of trade places on who's the dramatic one. Do you remember how I was talking about Gadar earlier? Well... Here's a little scene with Joel and Adam, where Adam doesn't really pick up much on his dad. So, Joel and Adam go to an antique shop, and Joel says he needs a lamp. So, let's read through this and discuss, shall we? Adam knew his sister was probably right. Joel wasn't dying. They'd gone to lunch a month ago, and Joel was fine. Sad, yes, and... Like Amy said, probably lonely, but not dying. They went for Thai food and talked about nothing important, except Joel seemed more interested in Adam's love life than before. Are you seeing anyone? Joel asked, and Adam peered at him across the bowls of Pad Thai, weary. No, he said it slowly. Why? They'd never had the kind of relationship where Adam could discuss his love life with his father. With his mother, yes. And he had done so regularly, but Joel had always kept that part of his son's life at arm's length. Later on in the book, Zeff talks about how... Zeff talks about... The narrator talks about how... Despite the fact that Joel is gay, he has a, a weird way of dealing with his son coming out. He's worried about his son. He's worried about his son being out at such a young age... And then his wife, Susan, is 
pushing all this information onto him, trying to get him to read articles and magazines and books. And Joel doesn't really know how to process all of it because he doesn't know quite how to process his own sexuality because he's in the closet and he's still trying to figure it out. But this conversation where he's asking him about his love life, that is Joel scoping Adam out, and Adam is a little dense here. Adam stirred the noodles in his bowl because he needed to focus on something that wasn't his confusion about his father suddenly asking about something he'd never cared about before. He supposed now that his mother was gone, his father felt he needed to step in and monitor his children's love lives, so he softened some. I mean, there was this guy, but he's not interested. What do you mean he's not interested? His father's reaction was so overwrought that Adam had to catch himself before he laughed. It was like his father's interpretation of the way his mother would have responded learning someone wasn't interested in one of their children. Just that, he wasn't interested, Adam shrugged. Joel was aghast. Then he was furious. Well, he huffed. His loss, I mean... I don't know this guy, and maybe I don't want to know him, but if he can't see what a catch you are, then he trailed off, waved a hand, dismissed any further thought or discussion of this unnamed cretin who would so roundly reject Adam. It's no big deal, Dad. You're right. And Joel gave a fur nod. Forget him. Afterward, they strolled next door to a store called Mid-Century. Adam was further confused. Yeah, isn't this interesting? So, in some minor stereotypical ways, Joel is kind of giving hints to Adam. Later on, Joel and Amy go clothes shopping and the narrator notes that Joel used to dress like a stereotypical professor, and now he's looking at floral patterns. So, yeah. Joel's trying to figure himself out. Joel had never seemed interested in the design of the house or the furniture that went into it. Those were his mother's core competencies. I'm looking for a lamp, Joel explained. I've never really liked that lamp in the foyer. You know the big green one? Looks like someone made a genie's lamp out of an avocado. Thought I might replace it with something less heavy. Oh, Adam had no interest in antiques and couldn't understand anyone's interest in them either. He shoved his hands into his pockets and stood awkward, pretended to study a console table against one wall. This stuff's pretty expensive. He shopped at thrift stores and tended to furnish his apartment from yard sales in the Salvation Army. Well, they're mid-century originals, Joel pointed out. Yeah, Adam had only the vaguest idea what made that a good thing. He heard people talk a lot, old ladies and fussy gay men, for the most part. There you go, ding, 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 ding. And knew that mid-century was really trendy, but other than that, he didn't get it. So, Adam is almost in denial about what's going on with his father. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking about updating the whole house, actually, Joel said, more to himself more than Adam. 
He picked up lamps, studied their basis, their chords, the price tags. For some reason he couldn't articulate, the remark angered at him. He opened his mouth to question his father, maybe demand why the house needed to be redecorated now, maybe suggest waiting so it didn't seem so insensitive to his mother's memory. There we go! And that is why Adam despises Joel throughout this book. Well, Adam loves his mother so, and he realizes that in order for his father to have been gay throughout all these years, he certainly wasn't a celibate gay man. No, Adam was fucking around with other men while his wife was at home. This is kind of a reasonable thing to be upset about. Now, infidelity is one thing. It's not nice. It's not great. I won't tolerate it in a relationship. But these are interesting circumstances. And Joel is sort of our protagonist, so we feel for him. But Adam is blind to his father's sexuality because he sees his father as straight only because of his mother's memory. Or at least that's my take on it. I had to stop and take a couple of Gaviscon because my stomach is bothering me. A man stepped up, smiling, his hands clasped in front of him like he might recite Shakespeare. He was dressed like a lumberjack, Adam thought, and was roughly the size of one. Do you gentlemen need any help today? Adam would have found the man attractive if they were in a bar and not an antique store. I was looking for a lamp, Joel said, smiling a little too broadly. Well, you found them, the guy said. Then he and Joel laughed like neither of them had heard anything so funny. Adam wished he was anywhere else in the world. Well, Adam, you blind motherfucker. You just can't see that your dad's pretty gay. Several weeks after the... I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. Several weeks after the lunch with Adam, Joel had gone on to Grinder. Okay, I gotta stop here and talk about Grinder. okay? For those of you who don't know, Grinder is a gay dating app that is really intended more for men to hook up and supposedly you and another gentleman could be in a bar together and you're both on Grinder, and you're both looking to hook up and well there you are so I was in my fourth year of college maybe and this gentleman that I was friends with well friends quotation marks we knew each other we got along we didn't hang out outside of class uh, he did a presentation on Grinder, and he was talking about how there's a whole subculture with Grinder where uh, there are a lot of straight guy, well, quotes straight guys on Grinder that use the app and don't use a profile picture because they don't want other guys to see them on there and say. Oh, hey, I saw you on Grinder. You gay? So, he talked about how 
if you go on there without a profile picture, there are people who won't want to have anything to do with you and shame you for it. And it was just really interesting to me. And he was showing screenshots and conversations and talking about how he'd hooked up. Well, he didn't say he hooked up. He said he met guys on the app that he knew outside of the app that had girlfriends. So all while he was doing this, I was like, so you downloaded Grindr for this presentation? And I was like, this is interesting in my mind. And the next semester I said, hey, have you still got Grindr? And I thought it was a joke. Did not know that he was gay. (laughs) I have a broken gaydar. Even when it's staring me in the face. This guy has Grindr downloaded on his phone. He did a class presentation on it. I still thought he was a straight guy. I'm telling you, this guy, there, there were no vibes given off. You know, they say that there's gaydar and mine's broken because he just seemed like a dude to me. Most gay men seem like just regular guys to me. So, it was late, but he'd had a few glasses of wine and he thought, why the hell not? He used it before with varying degrees of success and always some measure of shame. But he tried to stay off it during the worst of Susan's struggle with cancer. And it had been close to a year and it took several tries to recall his password. You ever used a dating app, by the way? Before I met my wife, I used Plenty of Fish and OkCupid and Tinder. I don't know if I used anything else, but OkCupid was the worst. OkCupid was full of vapid people, both men and women, and it was just a garbage fire. Each time I had an OkCupid account, I think it was three times, I did I deleted the account a day later because it just fucked with my OCD so badly. And I talked to a few girls from there. Nothing ever came of it. Plenty of fish, on the other hand, I ended up with a one-night stand, but... I've told that story before and I don't want to talk about it again. And then Tinder. That was a a great success because I'm married to the girl I met on there. His forays into the world of dating apps were always a mixture of optimism and hopelessness. Ain't that the truth? In any given time, night or day, there were more men online than seemed reasonable, but he learned long ago to ignore the profiles that revealed nothing about the person on the other side of them. Names that suggested sex or penis size, too. Joel himself had got the cold shoulder a lot because his own profile did not reveal his face, so finding anyone interested took longer than it should have. This harkens back to what my friend in college talked about. Do you know that feeling when you're talking to someone and things are getting heated? Your blood pressure rises, you get a little nervous, excited nervous and then you're wondering if it's gonna work out and they're coming over so something must be happening unless you fuck it up and you're just praying you're hoping 
Don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. Well, there's a casual text conversation between Joel and this gentleman named Kent. And Kent offers to drive over to Joel's. When he arrived, Kent looked around in awe at the house and the furniture, like he was a potential buyer and not as a trick. Your place is amazing, he told Joel, who mumbled a polite thanks. I own an antique store, so... Then it clicked where Joel had seen him before, the day he'd been looking for lamps. Kit admired the original naughty pine paneling, the vaulted ceilings and the original bar separating the kitchen from the dining area. So, how do you think this ends? Ooh. You know what I was talking about? How you get excited, you think something's going to happen. Well, Joel doesn't take Kent to the bedroom where he slept with his wife. They go to a room in the basement. Um, first of all, if you're going to hook up with someone, don't take them into a fucking basement, okay? Especially if they're strangers. And grown men going into basements to hook up, what, what the fuck is up with that? I mean... I, You'd rather it'd be better if you fucking got drunk and made out and fucked on the couch for God's sakes. Uh, <laughs> on Grinder, Joel was intrigued by the peak at Ken's auburn chest hair, and when they chatted, the prospect of a quick romp with a burly specimen had certainly aroused him. My wife just died, he heard himself say. Kent stopped scrutinizing the paneling, turned slowly. Okay, he said, not looking at Joel, where he stood across the room. He looked everywhere but at Joel, like he suspected Joel might have Susan's body lying in a state somewhere in the house. Recently, I mean, Joel added to clarify, in February. Oh, then silence. Kent finally said, we don't have to do this if you don't want to. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh. That's also not the first time someone says that... Well, not the last time someone says that sentence in this book. Oh, my God. Oh. I have been in some awkward situations in my time I don't know of a time where I fucked up as badly as Joel right before having sex so they ended up at Waffle House drinking bad coffee and commiserating Waffle House's coffee is not that bad I like Waffle House, but I am an uncultured, and I'm a country bumpkin. I'm not really a connoisseur of coffee, but 
I've never had a, a problem with Waffle House coffee. Waffle House coffee sounds really good right now, but Waffle House is closed because of the pandemic. And I need a sip of water. I don't need coffee. My blood pressure is, is a problem. As I've said, you're probably tired of hearing about it by now. Fuck you. I'm sorry. I love you. Please don't go. So, Ken had been married before in his 20s and was just out of a 10-year relationship with a man. He developed a thing for twinks, he said, and blinked his astonishment. I guess that's the thing now. Older, bigger, hairy guys who are into young, skinny guys who shave their entire bodies and vice versa. The whole dichotomy of it, I guess. Joel guessed it was a lot like men who married women even though they're attracted to men. He knew better than to marry Susan, but he did it anyway, then sought sex elsewhere. To be honest, he understood it perfectly. Taste changed, he suggested. To make Kent feel better, Kent shrugged. I guess. I should apologize about tonight, Joel offered, for wasting your time. I don't know what I was even thinking, really. To be honest, neither do I, Kent said with a laugh. I mean, and please don't take this personally. You're not exactly the type of guy I'm attracted to. I tend to go for bigger guys with beards and hair. You're not mine either, Joel confessed. I usually like guys more like myself or younger. This conversation reminds me of a conversation that my wife had. I think it was before we were married, and it actually took place in a Waffle House. And we were talking about our exes and the abuse that we'd gone through, but also how much we loved the people that we'd been with, and in a sense, we would never stop loving them. And it was an interesting bonding moment where we admitted to each other that we still loved people that we'd been with before, but... If you love someone, you never really stop loving them. Your love might diminish over time, but I think that emotion and human connection are complicated, and just because you and a person split doesn't mean that a connection is lost entirely. But they both knew why they went onto the app, and what they were looking for. A connection with someone, anyone. Kent knew and Joel suspected that the majority of the men on those apps and websites were doing the same, though none of them would ever admit it. Kent and Joel have a relationship that is complicated, to say the least, but Kent introduces Joel to this new lifestyle, and he's sort of his tour guide into all of this. And it's heartwarming how Kent introduces him to this community and they all accept Joel and they all talk about how they're all different. And Joel doesn't have to quote-unquote suffer alone. In fact, he doesn't have to suffer at all if he just accepts himself. And that's kind of... The thing that Joel has a hard time with 
not so much accepting himself, but accepting his children, accepting him. This series might take more than three episodes. <laughs> I just finished the first chapter. Uh, to be fair, the first chapter is pretty dense, but uh, it's not terribly long. And that's the thing about this book is it takes a little longer to read just because there's so much to it. And the next notable scene is the, the last scene I'll go over and then I'll pick up in the next podcast episode. How does that sound? Great. I'm also probably going to edit the hell out of this episode because I don't know if anything I said in the first 20 minutes of the episode is applicable or if it makes me sound stupid or if it is a genuine story that people want to hear. That is assuming that anyone listens to this at all. But I am trying to always evolve and realize that even though I don't hold prejudices, I can still say things that are stupid. And maybe I have prejudices against people that are different than me without realizing it. And the key in all that is discovering what those prejudices are and correcting them. Because none of us are perfect. Here we go. Joel meets with his sister Rhoda, assumedly named after the old 70s sitcom. On Wednesday, Joel called his sister Rhoda and invited her to lunch the next afternoon. And much like his daughter Amy, she asked what's wrong. Joel laughed. Everyone always thinks there's something wrong. Is there? Joda asked. No, nothing's wrong. Can I call up my sister and invite her for lunch without there being a problem? Yeah, I tried to make it sound a little bit more Jewish and I failed. So, God. They get to the restaurant. And Joe wants to come out to his sister. And I have to say... For someone who isn't in the book very much, Zell does a really good job of defining Rhoda as a character. And I'm sure he knew quite a few Rhodas in his life. Joel got a table, asked for a Diet Coke, and waited. Fifteen minutes later, Rhoda swept into the cafe out of breath, like she'd sprinted across the parking lot and not walked a mere twenty feet. You know, she said, the employees get here early and grab all the good spots. I don't think that's the case, Ro, he said, and pretended to study the menu. Bullshit, she said, and pushed her enormous sunglasses back onto the top of her head. How are you? Have you lost weight? You look like you got some nice color. Did you go to the beach? I'm good, he said, and chose to ignore the remark about his weight. And Ro to speak, you look like you've lost weight, really translated to, you should lose some weight. Never mind that she outweighed him by 20 pounds. And it's a self-tanner. Oh, she said. Well, be careful you don't overdo it. You remember Sharon Fura? She went and she got a spray tan. And it turned to hair orange too. Horrible. Eyebrows, eyelashes, lips, everything. She made a swipping motion to demonstrate exactly how bad Sharon Fura had it after her experience. 
I have it professionally done, he told her. At one of those tanning places, you mean? Rhoda motioned frantically for the server, her arms moving like she was on the deck of an aircraft carrier. At a spa. Well, that sounds rich. The server came, and Rhoda ordered a small prune juice, a coffee, and a glass of water. No ice, room temperature, please. So what's such a big secret you couldn't tell me over the phone, she asked. She studied the menu, though both of them knew she would order the same thing she always ordered. A pumpernickel bagel, lightly toasted with locks, one thin slice of the ripest tomato you have, with capers, and very thinly shaved red onion, both on the side. I didn't say it was a secret, Joel said. I said it would be better if I told you in person. Rhoda huffed. Why are you going to tell me or not? Let's order first. So Rhoda is sort of the stereotypical, I'll just say lady, who (laughs) maybe person, maybe that would be more PC for me to say. She is picky, and she always sends her food back. If you couldn't tell by her ordering three different beverages, Jesus Christ, I never in my life have ever dined with anyone who who wanted three beverages. I have gone to a Waffle House and asked for a glass of water and coffee. That's not out of the ordinary, or maybe orange juice and a a glass of coffee, a cup of coffee. But three beverages is... Let's skip ahead in the conversation a little bit, shall we? Rhoda's eyes narrowed. Where's this going, Joel? He sighed. I'm getting there. No, you aren't. You're telling me everything I already know. You met Susan in college. You barely dated. And the next thing you all know, you were getting married. You were young and stupid, and you started making babies. You gotta see the baby. And she was a good mother, and you love your kids, Rhoda stopped, shrugged, spread her hands. These are things we know, Joel. If you just listen. Well, if you just get to the point. Fine. I'll skip to the fun part. Good. I'm gay. That's what I brought you here to tell you, Ro. Silence. Even the chatter from the other patrons, the tinkling of silverware and coffee cups had stopped, it seemed. Rhoda sat blinking at him for a long moment. Then she glanced away to a point somewhere just to his left, then to his right, then she glanced down at her plate, then back at Joel. Her mouth moved, but nothing came out. Joel felt his hands starting to shake, and he clasped them together in his lap. He opened his own mouth to speak to ask if she was mad at him, if she hated him. Anything to break that discomforting silence, but like Rhoda, nothing came out. He actually felt his voice catch in the back of his throat. Well, she said. All the sounds of the restaurant rushed back. 
and Joel was glad to know he hadn't suffered a stroke. Are you mad? She regarded him as if he'd called her a name. Mad? Why would I be mad? He shrugged. She rejected the idea with a wave with her hand, slumped a bit in her chair. Like she simply had no more anticipation left for anything after waiting all that time. I'm not mad, she told him again. Okay, he said. At least, not about you being gay. But I am mad. You felt like you couldn't tell me before this. Hell, Joel, you could have told me 40 years ago and saved yourself all this. Now, as humorous as this is, in the grand scheme, if Joel hadn't lied about his sexuality and not married Susan and not produced his children, well... Not only would his life be totally different, but also his children wouldn't exist, his grandson wouldn't exist, and we wouldn't have a book. But that's beside the point. I think what we have to analyze here is not what would have happened had Joel been out of the closet a lot earlier, but the consequences of waiting all this time to come out. Now, his only consequence here is, for one thing, Rhoda points out something later on that I'll get to that kind of frightens Joel, but uh, Adam, as I said, he doesn't take it well, and Amy's confused, but it's interesting and almost funny how, well, it is funny how Adam finds out. I'll I'll be square and honest with you. But I'll have to go over that in the next episode. Look, I've only gotten through 28 pages of this book, so I'm, I'm not making quick progress here. But it's, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, God, this is a great book. And... It, it says something when uh, less than 30 pages of a book feels like 50 or 70 pages of another book. So, I have to come back to this when I'm feeling less verklempt. And hopefully I'll have finished the second half of the book by the time I get around to recording the next episode. But I might record another episode later in the week. I don't know. It's a lot right now. Um, So I was going to record more episodes about Bukowski, and I will, but I had to stop reading Ham on Rye. I don't think I'm going to finish it for the second time, honestly. Uh, it's, it's It's too heavy for me right now. And this book, all about the Benjamins, is pretty heavy too, but Bukowski is... oh. Wow. And with everything going on in the world and my anxiety and my health, I have to to take into account what's important. And some days I don't feel like I'm important. Some days I feel like my health isn't important. 
today's one of those days where I wish I could just shut off. Yeah. And having spent all my energy, remaining energy on the podcast right now, well, that just goes to show my batteries have run down. So go out and buy this book, All About the Benjamins by Zeb Good. This podcast is not an advertisement for his book. It's supposed to be an advertisement for my books. Go buy my fucking books, people. But Zeb is a brilliant, brilliant writer. So if you appreciate good writing, whether you are male, female, gay, straight, anything in between, please... Please read Zeph good. Please read Zeph good. Please. I don't know what I have to do. Do I have to beg you? Do I have to come up and kiss you on the mouth? You'd like that, wouldn't you, you fucking whore? So, good evening, everyone. It is 10.35 here, and I'm going to go watch The Sopranos. Bye. Happy reading.